Welcome, everybody, to episode 81 of the Matt Jones podcast, recording this on Tuesday, on Election Day here in Kentucky. You know, I didn't think, I thought there'd be nobody better to have on Election Day than Tom Hart, who everyone <laughs> thinks about when they think about who should be in public office in America. Tom Hart from ESPN and the SEC Network. Tom, how are you? Uh, I'm fantastic, Matt. Um, my civics teacher would think that that is the funniest joke she's ever heard, that yes. I would have anything to do with politics at any point in my life. You know, it's funny. People always accuse me. You're like, oh, Matt, you're, you're so into politics. Po stick to sports. And what they don't realize is I really like politics, but I don't like people who like politics. Like, I'm the only like, – <laughs> Like, I, I don't really like to spend time with political people. I actually like people like Tom Hart who don't care about it whatsoever. I'm glad you finished that sentence because I thought for a moment you were going to say, I don't like people. And then there was a pregnant well, pause, and then you said, who like politics? And I was thankful that at least you finished that part. Well, there's getting to be truth to that, too. Like, just not letting <laughs> me, like, I've got to be more of a loner. Well, Tom, let's start with this. Um, you know, you have become, the, the Athletic just did a story recently about this. You've kind of become the, I would say you're the ESPN slash SEC Network announcer who people most feel like is just one of the guys. Like, like just, I think the Kentucky fan base obviously feels close to you, but I think others do too. Is that just like, did you, did you want to be kind of the everyman guy or did it just happen? Well, that's an incredible compliment, first of all. I mean, that's how I – this is going to sound political, but that's how I live my life. I mean, that's, that's who I am. And the ultimate goal in broadcasting, in, in my belief, is to be who you are, is to be mm -hmm. real. Um, I think people can uh, see through fakeness. Um, and, uh, you know, my broadcasting friends and I, we, we make fun of um, people who use broadcasting vo voices. We call oh, them yeah. pukers. You know, like if you constantly – uh, you know, scream for two hours during a game. That's not really how you speak. That's not who you are. Nobody would want to hang out with you or sit next to you at the bar. Like that's, I want to be the guy that people say, you know what? I'd like to know what he thinks about this game, whether I'm wearing a headset and I'm sitting courtside or, you know, they walk into KS bar and say, Hey man, what do you, you point to any of these screens? What do you think about what's going on in that game? Um, I want to be the guy that they say, yeah, I want, I want to talk ball with this guy and, um, and pick his brain and learn what he knows. When did you realize that, like, the Kentucky fan base could be a fan base that you could have that connection to? Obviously, we met you – I mean, I'd met you before, but we kind of became friends in the Bahamas a couple years ago. But did you – I mean, you've, you've seen all the SEC fan bases. Do you think the Kentucky one is unique in any particular way? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely unique. I, I think the first glimpse of that was in the Bahamas. Um, you know, I, I'd like to think of myself as, as um, being fairly observational and having some skills in that regard. Watching, you know, it's funny, watching the way Dan Dockich was received that week with the Kentucky fans that were on site opened my eyes to a lot of different things. Um, I don't think it would be a stretch to say that pre-Bahamas, Dan Dockich was hated by Kentucky fans. That's not a stretch, right? I mean, there, he had a certain personality yeah. that was grating to Kentucky fans, and he doesn't <laughs> hold anything back. Uh, and he doesn't care what people think uh, in public, but he really does. You know, everybody cares what, what people think. And so I watched how he interacted with fans, and he constantly said to them, hey, just spend a couple minutes with me. I'm not that bad a guy. And lo and behold, they respected the fact that he had time for them and he was willing to speak to them and share his thoughts. And um, I don't know that <laughs> I'll have to text Dan after this. I don't know that Dan Dockett should be giving out any lessons in that regard, but I learned from him. I learned how he reacted and I learned a lot about the Kentucky fan base and um, how involved they were. I know that sounds probably pretty naive um, to the, to the average fan, but, to be in that beautiful setting and to show up for your radio show at 10 a.m. and not only that, be lined up, lined up outside in the hallway for your radio show at 10 a.m. 
and then to leave that to go line up for a basketball game that afternoon when the beach was 200 yards away. I was like, man, <laughs> these people are dedicated. Yeah, um, that's true. And it was, and, and going back to that whole experience, um, it was seeing how you guys on the show interacted with the fans that it was obvious that they appreciate and they respect personal connections. And that was, that was eye opening to me. And I thought, you know what, let's, um, let's use some common sense here and let's start connecting with people. It, and that can be hard to do when you show up for a game and then you leave town. It's a lot easier when you show up to the same places on a regular basis and you get to know people and they get to know you um, and you get to know places and you drop a couple references to them. It just, it all kind of comes together. Um, and that, I think that's probably what happened. I've always said that the Kentucky fan base may be one. And, and, and you know, I'm, I only really have, I mean, I went to Duke, but I wasn't a fan. So I only really have the uh, sort of experience with Kentucky, but I feel like Kentucky's fan base is very insular, you know, meaning like, they really love being Kentucky fans and they yeah. really want you to love them as a whole. And I learned early on that if I made the Kentucky fan base part of the experience so that Kentucky sports radio, my, my initial radio boss wanted me to name it the Matt Jones show. And I didn't back then because I wanted to connect it to my website to have a synergy between my website and my radio show. But in hindsight, I think that also allowed people to think, hey, I am part of this thing. This isn't the Matt Jones show. This is Kentucky sports radio. And I think that you have tapped into that because when you make those comments and you give the comments that they get, they feel like you have made them part of the process, part of the family. I get that. The person I'm watching the game with may not, and I'll explain it to them. I think that is something they really like. I think every fan base wants to be relevant. They, they want their programs to be relevant. Don't get me wrong. That's probably the foundation of it. But they want to be relevant. Mm -hmm. and, and their interaction um, with announcers could be part of it. Um, or it could be that they see Benny Snell at the, small, at the mall or they see, you know, Lynn Bowden in the drive-thru. And they just, you know, we grasp, especially appreciative now because we don't have sports – but we grasp at something that gives us community yes. to know that someone else is in this journey with me, whether it's um, my neighbor in the apartment above or my dad who's back home two hours away or my uncle who lives five hours away or even on the West Coast. Uh, that's what community is. And we find different ways to scratch that itch, whether it's through your church or um, the men's group uh, at your golf club or poker night or watching a game with friends, or watching a game at home, but knowing that someone's in it with you. And so anytime as an announcer, we can serve that sense of community, it just, it, it kind of, it makes sense. My, my goal, though, when I dropped the Easter eggs, um, and, and getting Andy Kennedy involved this year made it twice as funny, because 90% of the time, he had no idea what he was talking about. But he was willing to go along for the yes. ride. Um, and a funny story about that in a second. But um, you know, the goal is to always put the game first and you never want to distract from the game. So if you can do that in a way that is a comparison that makes sense just through wordplay, um, that, that the people who don't know what the reference is can still picture it, that's absolutely perfect. If you talk about how expensive a bumper is on a Maserati, yeah. someone's going to say, man, that's random, but I bet a Maserati bumper is really expensive, <laughs> even yeah. if they don't know the backstory. Um, so I never want to take away from the game. And there's some critics out there that say, yeah, he, he speaks to this group too often and it takes away from the game. Well, most people, if they don't get it, it's over their head, but it's not disruptive to the broadcast. And I think that's the ultimate goal. I, I was brought up, um, I listened to two different MLB broadcasts growing up. I grew up in Columbia, Missouri. Two hours to the east of me were the St. Louis Cardinals. Two hours to the west were the Kansas City Royals. And I was the only kid in my class who was a Royals fan. Everyone else was Cardinals. And Cardinals was kind of the, um, the uppity group, if that makes sense. I mean, they had the money. They're always in the playoffs. They, and Kansas City was kind of more gritty. Kind yeah. of the more, you know, whether that was the wheat fields of Kansas or 
the gritty urbanization of inner city Kansas City. I'm not sure which it was. But the Cardinals broadcasters, Jack Buck and Mike Shannon, were always having a party in the booth, and you could picture like a velvet rope outside the booth where you could stop by and look, but you could never go in. And so mm -hmm. you always, man, that's a really cool party. I'd love to be part of it. But it was almost exclusionary. And, and I don't know why that's why I thought this way. That was just my impression as a kid listening over AM radio. The Royals was a much more down home. We're just talking to you, Tom Hart, in the second row of your dad's station wagon while you're waiting in the grocery store parking lot. We're talking to you about this game tonight. Um, and you're here with us, and we want to involve you. And that struck me as a listener, at, you know, in third, fourth, fifth grade, whatever it was. And while I would much rather have hung out with the Cardinals guys, I felt like I was part of a group with the Royals broadcasters, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I totally get that. I mean, like, you know, KSR, I don't think there are a lot of people out there that think me, Ryan, Drew, and Shannon are cool. Like, they don't, like, <laughs> look at us and be like, man, those dudes, you know, look how cool those guys are. <laughs> but I think that they think that we are having fun and that we are kind of being ourselves and we're like a group of friends, which we are. Yeah. And that, like it'd be a group of friends you want to hang out with. So like, for instance, you, you, you came on the boat with me in the Bahamas. We had like, really one of the great things is I've made my work group an extension of my friend group. So it's basically all of my best friends. And I think you saw like what you hear on the radio with us is how we are. Like we're on the boat, we're making fun of each other. It's not like we have a different life than what people hear. And I think I've always believed that realness is what people crave. And, you know, when I go to ESPN, it has taken me a while uh, when I do my ESPN stuff to be real because, like, I don't have that shared knowledge with them. And I'm starting to get that. But I think in today's world, people want to feel like it's real. And I agree with you. I think where people that the people that are boring are the people that seem fake. I really want to know that the person I'm listening to is kind of how they seem when I'm listening to them. Now, listen, I didn't mean to laugh so hard, and I'm not saying you guys aren't cool. Oh, we're not cool. Okay. <laughs> but I mean, you are, you are totally in touch with who you are as a group. And, and I would, this is just top of mind to me, but. Um, since this pandemic and I haven't been traveling, I have been working, I've been playing a lot of golf and I am more comfortable at the nine hole public course down the street because there are no airs and I don't have to go out there and press anybody. I don't need to make sure that my shirt's tucked in. I don't need to make sure, you know, are they going to laugh because I'm playing with an orange ball instead of a white ball? Or my you play with an orange up? ball? You really uh, play with yeah, an yeah. orange ball? Yeah, I do play with an orange ball. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I would uh, laugh, but go ahead. Well, sure. And I would take that grief but I don't need to worry about what other people think. Does that mean that I don't want to play the Tony country club every once in a while with all its amenities? Sure. That's fun. That's a blast too, but I'm not going to be myself out there for 18 holes worrying about, am I following the rules that I need to follow to fit into this community? Cause it's not my community. So I want to hang out with like people. I want to hang out with chill people who don't take themselves too seriously and we can laugh at each other and not get upset about it. You know, um, we went out in that boat and there was in the Bahamas and, and you, you invited me to come out and there was like maybe one minute to consider whether or not I wanted to go on a boat for an entire afternoon with like eight dudes I didn't really know. And I went, why not? Yeah, of yeah. course, let's go. And, and there was, you know, I wasn't um, concerned with, well, what are they going to think about me? Am I handling myself the right way? I mean, there was one time I went swimming off the boat and you guys could have pulled up the anchor and just left me out in the middle <laughs> that of the Atlantic. Been so, I wouldn't have, we wouldn't have done that. Probably not. It would have made for a good story somewhere along the line. We might but, have done that you know, to Dockage if Dockage had come. Like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I could see that. Um, um, but no, that, that's a, those are the kind of groups I want to hang out with is my point. And I, and I think that that's what I get from your listenership statewide is, they tune in because they like you guys and they're comfortable with you and they know that you're real. Uh, you mentioned Andy Kennedy and your references. I still, my favorite of your references was of course the one that was about me personally. When you got Andy <laughs> Kennedy, when you got Andy Kennedy to say free Matt Jones, and I'm not even sure if he knew exactly what that meant, but he said it. And I, uh, I really appreciated that. No, he had no idea what it meant. And you know, 
ESPN is very strict about their discussion points when it comes to politics. You know this. Mm-hmm. And that's a line we're not supposed to cross. So that hashtag obviously has its foundation in politics, right? Yeah. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. Um, I, didn't, I didn't think of it that way going into that night. I think it was a Friday night game. Um, I didn't think of it that way. I just thought, you know, hey, this is something fun, and it's a trending hashtag, and I know it would mean something to you if we got it out there in the middle of a Kentucky basketball game. And so I, I said, hey, man, here's one thing that's going to come out of my mouth tonight during the game. This was to Andy. I said, it probably won't make any sense to you. I go, it's a long story. I go, but uh, I might drop a hashtag free Matt Jones. And he's like, yeah, dude, I'm down. Okay, sure, whatever. <laughs> and there was a dunk. I don't know who it was. There was a dunk, and he took the replay going to break, and he just yells it out. And we go to break. We get in a break, and I've got my head in my hands, and I'm dying laughing. But then, then this sense of maybe we shouldn't have crossed that line washed over me. And I said to myself, um, you know, it's one thing if I get myself in trouble. It's another, if you get it's Andy. another thing if I get my partner in trouble. And we're walking that night after the game. We, it was a 7 o'clock game. We were rushing to meet up with my football crew for a steak dinner. And um, he goes, hey, man, that's not going to get me fired now, is it? And I said, no. You, I said, you're good. Uh, you can say whatever you want. And I did hold my breath for a little bit. Not, did, not did, you ever have any that you did, did you ever ever had any that you did that they told you not to do? No, no. Um, I've had discussions with my bosses before where I've crossed the line or colored outside the lines, I think is a fair way to put it. Whether it be, um, you know, a reference or um, trying to draw a comparison that – that maybe the entire audience wouldn't appreciate. But and any with us, like any of ours? No, no, n- none of yours because nobody know. none of my bosses know what yours are. <laughs> That's right? a good point. Yeah, they so don't, they don't they, they I'm don't talking about a Maserati's bumper, they're just like, what the hell is Tom talking about? They're not yeah. like, oh, he's referencing a show. We need to put it into it. And, and I, I'm going to give myself a pat on the back. I think I use them in ways that, like I alluded to before, make sense. When we're doing Kentucky, South Carolina, and it's a pump and go, but the guy doesn't go, and the quarterback holds the ball, and he's looking for him to come open, that turned into a pump and shot because he pumped, and then he was shopping. And he was like, shot. That's Look, that's great. I, the, you put, I mean, it made sense. If you ever me. get a quarterback whose last name is Clark, then you're really – then you're there. <laughs> you'll be yeah, you'll, there's, perfect. There's a lot of ways to tie it in. I'll give you one that was um, kind of a social media thing that's been a meme and a trend, whatever. Uh, And it just, it's because sometimes my mind is juvenile and this is how I think, but we're doing an Ole Miss game. I think they're playing Arkansas and they have this Jerry Neely, this incredible running back. They're so athletic in the backfield. And this guy rips off a run down the sideline. And it's one of those runs where you can, you can build into your touchdown call because you see it 25 yards away that he's going to score. And before he goes into the end zone, my stats guy who sits like five feet to my left holds up the yardage. And, and that's kind of the peeling behind the curtain. How we, I got a guy there that tells me the yardage on every play. He, he's done the math before he gets in the end zone and he holds up the yardage and it's 69. And I just blurt out 69. Nice. And then – and, and then that night, like actually going to that break, I was like, you know, probably shouldn't have gone there. Uh, my saving grace in my own mind was if you got the reference, you won't be offended by it. If you're yeah. the type of person who would be offended by it, you, you don't understand it. the reference anyway. And it um, was nice. It was 69 yards. That's a was, long run. That's a yeah, nice that's run. That's a very long run. Yeah. That's how I thought of it. Well, let me you – were, you were calling the game that, in my opinion, is the biggest – UK football game uh, win of my lifetime, which is the win at Florida. Um, I mean, I think that win, you know, that's one of those I'll, I'll always remember kind of where I was. By the way, you're, you're, there you are, you're back. Um, the, uh, but there was a lot of parts of it. The bar had mm-hmm. just opened. I was my first weekend ever at ESPN in Bristol. Uh, Jared Lorenzen was running around and obviously he's since passed away. 
there's just a lot of special memories of that night. You were there. Did you get Ryan's, a sense? Right, Ryan's video. Where Ryan being on Sports Center with his shirt off. You, yeah. You were there. Did you get a sense at some point like this is special to the? I mean, did you get that sense? Yes and no. Um, I take pride in being in tune, obviously, for this discussion with the Kentucky fan base, but. I know I've done a good job when I'm in tune with whatever fan base of whatever game I'm calling. And what I mean by that is it's not just what's happening on the field. It's how are they going to react to this game? Yeah. What does this game mean for next week? What does it mean for next month? What does it mean for their bowl game? And um, so I was in tune with that for Kentucky. I don't think I did a good enough job of sharing that with our production crew even though we had the Kentucky-Florida game the year before where twice Kentucky left a receiver wide open. Yes. And so no game can be taken in a vacuum of just what happened in those three and a half hours. It's all related, especially when it's a conference game. So that was a huge win for Kentucky and for all the reasons you mentioned, and people relate to it because they had felt the heartache not just for 30 years, but the year prior. And yeah. so that was a huge benefit for our crew to have been at Commonwealth Stadium the year before um, to understand now what that win meant in Gainesville. But it, it's always a delicate balance of it's not a, a broadcast just for the Kentucky fans and it's not a broadcast just for the Florida fans. It's a national broadcast. So uh, we need to serve the Kentucky fans. We need to serve the Kentucky fans. We need to serve the SEC fans and we need to serve the average fan who just happens to be tuning in on that Saturday night because that turns out turns in to the game of the night in college football in that in that um, in that window. So, yes, I understood it. I felt like I could have done a better job um, in the fourth quarter to really push what it would mean to Mark Stoops in the program, and um, and in turn, we could have served that moment better. Like that's that's me admitting that no broadcast is perfect because I'm sure from a Kentucky standpoint, fans are like, man, I just watched that game last week and I loved every second of it. Um, but I don't think that way. I, I, I'm a perfectionist. Well, you're I think hard there's on yourself. That's what people are. When you do Kentucky Hartford basketball in November or in December, and likely 90% of the people watching are Kentucky fans, does that change how people broadcast it? I mean, I get what you're saying when it's Kentucky, Florida, because in, especially in football, in theory, both fan bases are watching, but when it's Kentucky yeah. basketball, and especially if the opponent is a non-conference bad team, you know, almost everybody watching is a Kentucky fan. Does that change how you all do it at all? Well, I, I would disagree in this sense. Um, and, and let me, let me answer that question this way. I broadcast differently. Uh, first of all, depending on which network I'm on. So an SEC network broadcast is going to sound different. I'm going to prepare differently than an ESPN2 or an ESPN1 broadcast. They're all different, uh, which is different than when I do an ABC broadcast. The, the wider the net that you're casting based on the network, um, and this is for your viewers because I know you understand it, but the wider the net, the less depth you can have yeah. and the more treetop information you need to touch on because, you know, think about it. Um, my mom doesn't know who Mark Stoops is, but if she's watching a Kentucky bowl game on ABC, I, there are more of my moms watching than on a typical SEC network broadcast. Yeah. So yeah. I think that that explains itself. But also consider this. There is no fan base with the um, reach like the Kentucky fan base, not just nationally because they're spread out everywhere, but also the brand. So more people, even if it's Kentucky versus Hartford, if people are flipping around and they see Rupp Arena and they see Kentucky, they may not be a Kentucky fan, but more of those people are going to stop. Can you confirm, like, I've said this a lot, and the numbers bear this out, but it is fascinating because I don't think a lot of fans would realize that a Kentucky or Duke game against a bad team will outrate two so if Kentucky or Duke's top five and they're playing Hartford, that will actually outrate a number 18 Maryland versus number 21 Georgia Tech game, right? I mean, like Kentucky and Duke draw like that. 
I think I think it would be more fair to say um, number eighteen Maryland against um, against an unranked Rutgers team. You know, usually top twenty five opponents are are going to do fairly well because casual fans will see the numbers on the screen and they'll want to stick around. But yeah, Kentucky basketball. Pulls in crazy numbers. But, I mean, at the end of the season, the top ten rate watched games, seven of the ten will involve Kentucky or Duke. Yes, yes. And and that varies by year. I mean, obviously, uh, when Zion was at Duke, those was numbers were incomparable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and it speaks to not just, say, the draw that Kentucky basketball is, but the draw that it's been for decades. So. Yeah. Not to take anything away from John Calipari, but a lot of it is the brand. And Cal has his own brand. So when you see him on the sidelines, that gets people to tune in and to stick around. All of that works um, to build this giant snowball that gets rolling down the hill. But, yeah, I do, I do treat it differently. And I will speak more to Kentucky fans in a Kentucky-Hartford game than I, will, uh, than I would a general audience, so to speak. But at the same time, um, I also know that those Hartford fans, to use the school that you pulled out, they understand that they're going to have very few opportunities <laughs> like true. that. That's true, yeah. This is the one and time so they're usually, on TV. Yeah. That's the one time I, they're on TV. And watch for this going forward. If it's, um, if it's a broadcast like that, I make sure that we get in something about the other team as early as the under 16-minute timeout. Because there's a pretty good chance when we come on the air we're going to talk Kentucky in the open. We're going to go straight to tip. And the first five minutes are generally going to be about Kentucky. And we don't know how long that game's going to be close. So we don't know if we're going to be talking Hartford at all in the second half. So let's, let's serve that audience. And, man, it makes them feel good. Hey, they showed a picture of our campus or they talked about, uh, you know, the new gym we're building or whatever it might be and give them a chance to feel the love too. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Let's switch gears to talk about – football this year i go back you did that was a very depressing pivot you just made i mean you're from your voice to your body language well because just, I, okay so let's say all right so a couple of weeks ago i had ryan mcgee on and i think we both felt very confident at that point about football that it was going to happen and really the question was only how many fans get in but there really wasn't a question of whether or not they would play I do not feel as confident now. I think the, the the rising numbers, especially in the parts of the country that have not seen rising numbers up until this point, some of the stuff I'm hearing um, kind of behind the scenes makes me, I mean, I still think it is more likely than not we, we're playing, but I'm not nearly as confident as I was. You know more than me, uh, especially from the broadcasting side. Where do you think we are? I'm confident that we we'll, we will start on time. Um, I'm a glass half full guy, so um, that's going to be my answer until I see a big left turn, which we all understand could happen at any moment. I mean, we had the biggest left turn when I was on the air with you guys in Nashville sitting yeah. at the SEC tournament on March. Yeah, you 13th got the text 14th. while you were on the radio that we weren't playing, right? And yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I left your place and I ran to my hotel, packed my bags, and I got home as soon as I could because I thought. I might get stuck in Nashville. You know, nobody knew what was going to happen. Um, so I'm, I'm confident that we're going to have a season. I'm confident that the SEC is uh, better prepared than any major conference to go through with the season. Um, I just don't – to me, the biggest wild card, and, and there's a lot of issues out there, and, man, there are a ton of um, obstacles that administrators have to work around. What I'm most curious about is if we start on time September 5th or Kentucky situation September 3rd, what do those tests look like on October 3rd? Mm -hmm. What do rosters look like on October 5th? Um, what do they look like two weeks after that first game? And for all the hoops that everybody has to jump through, and I've, I've talked with coaches of all sports, and I've met with ADs, and I'm on the phone with people just – um, uh, mainly because I got nothing else to do, but, uh, you know, just to pick brains. And I'm, I'm curious about a lot of this stuff. And I think there are benefits to, and, and this is silver lining of a very dark cloud. 
what we're seeing now when it comes to test results, if anything, it is softening the way we think about this disease when it comes to the demographic, that, that age group, because we're seeing most of these, uh, all of them, uh, as far as I know, so far, uh, that they're asymptomatic or that uh, their issues are very minor compared to, uh, obviously, compared to the 120,000 deaths, deaths that we've seen nationwide. So if this age group isn't being effective, if these athletes aren't being affected and they can get through this process now and learn how to deal with positives and learn how to deal with quarantines in June and July, then I'm confident that once we get to August and camps open, they'll have a better handle on how to get through this. Well, that let, me, is, let, me, let me ask you that, one. That, I, I, I will admit real quick, I'll admit, I mean, that is me looking at the silver lining of an incredibly large storm cloud. I agree with all that. But to me, there's one question. It feels like with 120 college football teams and the numbers, somebody's going to get sick and somebody's going to get really sick. Like, it's just, just the, just like, I mean, not many 18 to 21 year olds are affected. I mean, I think it's a very small percentage, but it is a percentage, right? Like it's, it's, there are some people that for whatever reason, maybe just randomness, it occurs differently. What happens when a football player gets it and gets very sick, God forbid dies, but gets very sick and everybody knows does college football have the intestinal fortitude to then go or the gall, depending on how you look at it to go, Oh, well, keep going. Hmm. Well, let me answer it this way. When you say college football, when you refer to it, that is a very, um, and, and rightfully so nameless, faceless organization yes. that you're referring to in the general college football. Um, it won't be nameless and faceless when it comes to these decisions. It will be a conference commissioner. It will be a president of that school where that athlete got sick in your scenario. And no, no I, my I scenario is broader than that, Tom. If Georgia has a player that gets very sick and that gets out, that's going to be a national news story. I mean, whether Georgia stops it's all of these entities are going to have to make a decision. And we saw back in March that it just took Rudy Gobert getting it for everyone to shut down. Yeah. What do you think that happens? If Georgia has a player that's on a respirator, does the rest of the country still play? Well, if, if, if in that scenario, um, what my point was is, is college football is nameless and faceless, but the SEC is not. And Greg McGarity, the athletic director at Georgia, and Kirby Smart and Greg Sankey are not nameless and faceless. And I don't foresee a scenario. And I don't want to – I mean, it, it's it kind of – it's hard to wrap your mind around it because you don't want to think of this scenario. It's a better out of sight, out of mind. I like to have my head in the sand in some situations. But I can't imagine Greg Sankey going through with the season in that regard. I think, I think that's a hard shutdown. And that's what um, makes me think, not confident about it, Tom, is I feel like it feels almost inevitable that that's going to happen. And maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I hope I'm wrong. I pray I'm wrong. But it just – so, like, if the NBA, if one player gets sick, the NBA has contemplated what they're going to do. I mean, there are some reports saying no matter what happens, they kind of have a scenario. Do you think college football is contemplating it like that? I think the SEC has dozens of scenarios in okay. place right now um, for not only scheduling, but, um, you know, you've got a plan for things to go wrong. And so that's what they're spending all their time doing right now. College football doesn't have a commissioner, though. Yeah. And so, no, college football does not have a plan, so to speak. Um, you know, every – Every conference is on its own. And, and I think that we're going to see some uneven playing fields throughout the course of the season, some dramatic, some drastic, some impact games, some not. Um, and if that means some conferences aren't playing non-conference games, then they're, they're not. Well, let's it's talk about that because I'm interested in that. I mean, let's talk about the conference by conference thing. Do you believe these decisions will be made on the conference level so that you could see the SEC plays one week, the Big 12 doesn't? Like, is it, is it, do you think that could happen? There are scenarios where maybe some conferences 
take some weeks off and others don't? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think it's tied into a lot of different issues, not the least of which is what kind of resources do you have available to you? And by resources, that's, that costs money um, to test and protect your players and staff. And the resources and the money available to SEC schools is, is different than what's available, say, to Conference USA schools or to Sunbelt schools. And if you're not protected, if you're a lesser conference in terms of revenue and you don't have those same resources, can I, being an SEC school, can I schedule you? Can I play you? Can I put, am I putting my players yeah, further at risk by playing um, a non-conference opponent like that? So, uh, but I think that those are discussions. I think every conference is its own island in a chain of islands. So th- they're all going to be making decisions based on what's best for their league and for their players. And if it goes, if it runs in conjunction with what another league is doing, great. Um, you know, a lot of these commissioners have been around for a while. The Big Ten guy hasn't been around that long. Jim Delaney just just retired. So is the Big Ten, are they as predictable as they would have been under Jim Delaney? I don't know that. I don't know that those relationships are that solid where, um, you know, one conference knows what the other is going to be doing. Right now. I know there's constant meetings. There's constant calls to try and get everybody – I don't want to say to get everybody on the same page because what your neighbor is doing does not necessarily affect you in this situation, except for once you get to the bowl season and the playoffs and the like. So Tuesday, June 23rd, let's focus on the SEC on Tuesday, June 23rd. You have a lot of SEC contacts. Do you think the plan is now business as usual? You will play your full regular season Obviously, this can all change tomorrow, but as of yeah. Tuesday, June 23rd, do you think the plan is full regular season, full 12 games, et cetera, here we go? As of June 23rd, yes. Okay. Um, could if, there, go ahead. It, what is the first thing to go? So, for instance, let's say, let's say they find out that we can't play for the first three weeks of the year or something like that. Is the first thing to go the non-conference? I mean, do you think the SEC's primary goal is to make sure those nine conference games get played or eight conference games? Well, I'm just guessing here. Um, but I would say that, yeah, the non-conference would be the first to go. If for no other reason than, than this, if you're in a scenario where um, you have to reschedule games, they are easier to do within your own conference, even if it's somebody who wasn't previously on your schedule. But if, if the first week got knocked off and, um, you know, Eastern Michigan couldn't make it and Central Arkansas wasn't going to play Missouri and say Missouri and Kentucky had an open date for week four and they weren't supposed to play until November, and I'm just guessing here, you know what? We can make that happen. Yeah. You know, because you have a commissioner – so yeah, it's easier. Is there a world where is there a world where they say Tom, okay, we don't know what the Sun Belt's going to do. We don't know this. So maybe we play 10 SEC games instead of 8 and you play some more teams than you normally would. Is that I think that's possible? I think I think I think anything's possible. I think okay. that's that's not po- that's not just possible, but it's feasible because then you're controlling it. There has to be in my mind though a drop dead date for these other conferences to make their decisions when it comes to playing. Maybe that's August 1st. Use that for an example. If the Sun Belt says we're not playing any non-conference games, uh, we're, we will let you know by August 1st, then, then the SEC, in this example, has four weeks, four and a half weeks to figure something out. I was talking with an AD, and I said, um, what do you do if you lose your non-conference opponents? And what do you do if there's only Power 5 playing? And they said, you know what, it's really not that hard we will then schedule a non-conference power five opponent, hopefully one that we can bust to because – I mean, they, that would be – wouldn't most fans prefer that? I mean, like it would – Absolutely. I mean, like it could be Kentucky really cool. Kentucky didn't play Eastern Michigan and instead played West Virginia, I think we'd prefer it, wouldn't we? I mean – Yeah, or, or what if Kentucky got uh, Purdue on the schedule or yeah, something? Exactly. You know, hey, we could bust to a Big Ten school or they can bust to us and we can play the game and, um, you know – and once again, Matt, we're not talking about ticket sales right now, right? I mean, we're not talking about people in the stadium. We're just talking about playing Play. football well, games I want to switch to and filling sales. out a schedule. 
first, I asked this question to Ryan. Let's see if your answer ends up being the same. Do you think the SEC – so Kentucky is, the, is probably the most hesitant of all of the SEC states in terms of opening. I mean, we've opened pretty much everything up, but we were last in the SEC to do yeah. it. I would say you could probably say that Governor Bashir is probably the slowest to do these things, although not that far behind, but he's a little farther behind. Do you and and now we're seeing a lot of breakouts say in Texas, so things are sure. much worse in Texas than they are in Kentucky. So maybe now Texas slows down. Do you think the SEC is committed to saying the rules for fan attendance will be the same conference wide, or each state you just do it the way you do it? I think, and and I don't know this, but and and I don't know that Greg Sankey has has said this. Um, but I think that the rules for attendance are going to be incumbent upon the governor of that state, the leadership, not just statewide, but within those local municipalities to set those rules. Okay. Um, so that will lead to, in some situations, competitive advantages and disadvantages. Um, rewind three weeks ago, Governor Abbott in Texas was basically saying, hey, man, we're open for business. Yeah. And you could have pictured 107,000 people in Kyle Field. Well, if Kyle Field could be full, but uh, Tiger Stadium couldn't, that's a huge competitive advantage for Texas A&M over LSU. And there may be some voices who come out and say, hey, this isn't fair. The commissioner has to put a cap on this or he's got to control this. We need to have a level playing field. The, the, the economics right now are such a mess. I just can't foresee a scenario where the league could go to any school and say, we're going to preclude you from We're selling tickets and therefore making money because everyone knows what these budgets look like right now. There are layoffs left and right. There are furloughs left and right. Obviously that is occurring outside of the sports industry, but within the sports industry and, and at these individual campuses. And that's only going to be um, accelerated if there are scenarios where attendance is limited at any, by any percentage, right? Whether it be the people that work in the stadium or the people that work in that city or on that campus, everyone's going to be impacted. Okay. So, you know, you, how, let me, let, let's just say that things get worse over the next month. I, I actually don't think that'll happen. I think the more likely scenario is you get three or four weeks in the season and then it gets bad. Do you yeah. think these conferences are committed to, okay, if we get a bump in the middle of the year and we have to take a month off, we'll then play next year in January, February? I mean, do you, you know, do you think there is a sense of, look, man, we'll just take as long as it needs? I, I will, you will never hear me say between now and whenever we get a vaccine, you will never hear me say, that's not possible. That's not going to work. Okay, so that's I'm just going to throw this out there at the beginning of this answer, because everyone needs to be flexible. Yeah. And if if college football moving to the spring is what needs to happen to realize revenues and power entire athletic departments, then that's what needs to happen. I see that as unlikely, however, because the appeal of college football comes from having its best players on the field. I can't imagine. For example, Trevor Lawrence playing a game for Clemson in the month of March when he is just a couple months away from being the number one overall pick in the draft. Yeah. Um, and he's just one guy. Like, he's the guy at the top of the list. He's the one guy I would throw out there. Um, would Joe Burrow have been playing? Yeah, Joe Burrow's a different situation. He was not the number one pick when the season started last year. He played his way into that role. He played his way into um, a guaranteed economic future and generational wealth. So there will be players who say, man, I got to be out there on the field. There'll be others who say, I can't risk it. And a quick example is the day that the conference tournament was canceled, I left your show. I, I literally ran back to my hotel and I end up on the elevator with an LSU player. And I say to him, hey, knowing what we know right now, would you rather play and risk getting sick or not play? And he looked at me and said, man, I got to play. I want to play in the tournament. I'm trying to get drafted. I'm trying to make it to the league. Yeah. I got to be on the floor. And he was pissed that the thing had been canceled. And he didn't want to hear anything about the risk to his health. Yeah. 
he he had planned for that moment. So I don't know. That was a long-winded answer that took you a couple of different directions. No, I I see what you're saying. Let me let me bring up a different set of things. Now, a lot of players across the country are now using this platform that has come from the last few weeks to advocate for various social change. And I think where we're seeing it, maybe the strongest is in Mississippi with the Mississippi uh, state flag. And now is it Kylan Hill? What's the guy, what's the kid's name? The running back. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, best running back in, in the sec last year and could have gone pro. So he has said, I ain't playing for Mississippi state. If that flag still exists. I feel like that's almost not gotten enough coverage because that's a pretty amazing thing to have happen. You know, they don't fly the flag on the Mississippi State campus, so there's really nothing the people at Mississippi State can really do to make it better. It's going to have to be the Mississippi legislature, I guess, and the governor. What do you think happens with all that stuff? I feel like we're going to hear more of these things. I mean, I feel like there's going to be more players making that stand. What do you think? Well, I, I... – First of all, I love the fact that players are realizing their potential off the field. I, I think that only makes them better citizens going forward, no matter what they end up doing when their playing career is over. And I look forward to the opportunity that, that they'll have, no matter what sport they play right now, if, if they are this moved by it to get into politics and leadership when those playing careers are finished. There will be some who realize that, that the hammer they're trying to swing is not as heavy as they thought it was. And that's okay, too. They're, they're going to learn their lesson. I think the UCLA guys, that, you know, that happened last week. That kind of got out of whack pretty quick. Um, but I appreciate it. I, I want them to be able to stand well, do up you think what it works? I mean, do you think, do you think the Mississippi State running back – can can wield that kind of an axe in Mississippi? I think generally speaking, what works is um, a threat of loss of revenue. Okay. Uh, I think that's what, I mean, you know politics better than I do, but I think that's what speaks loudest. I, I think if this were any other state, I mean, we still don't know what's going to happen with Texas and their football players and athletes have said the eyes of Texas needs to go away. That song, if you've ever been to a Longhorns game, is as ubiquitous as Rocky Top, okay? So for that to happen, I think that would get a lot more media attention. Um, if they were on the practice field right now and we're building towards a season, and he were to use this leverage closer towards the season, um, he'd have a better chance. I don't know. I haven't talked to my friends in Mississippi about it enough to be educated enough to say, um, this is going to swing it, and, and the governor is going to listen. Uh, I think Reeves is the governor there. I, I, don't, I don't think he's motivated to listen to that right now. Well, it'll be interesting to see. I, I, I don't know. I, I find it all fascinating. I think, I think watching these kids – I mean, look, look what happened in Oklahoma State. Those kids changed something quickly. Uh, and it was really just by tweeting, <laughs> you know. So I, yeah. I, I, I'll be fascinated to see. Uh, I want to finish with with some Kentucky stuff with for, for you. So you, I try to tell people sometimes about Cal or Mark Stoops and kind of what they're like off the field, et cetera. But you know them a, a different way even than I do. So Mark Stoops, if you were going, if somebody was going to come up to you and say, tell me what Mark Stoops is really like, what would you say? I would, I would describe him as, um, you know, he is who he is. You know, he is exactly who he portrays himself to be. He's a, he's a good dude. He's a football guy. Um, he's the most underrated coach in the SEC and maybe college football. Why do you think that and, is? Why do you think that is? Well, I think Kentucky is a tough place to win, and, and history has proven that to be the case. Um, but he's obviously a very bright guy in that he had a blueprint coming in to build the program. And, and I, I'll give you an example of how he has impacted me and how I do my job and how I judge people against him is to this day, after hearing what his blueprint was and how he builds a program and, and being around him a lot. And basically that came, the, the foundation of it is we're going to go get SEC size guys up front first and we're going to build inside out 
and we're going to reach into Big Ten country and get those guys that the Big Ten has forsaken and get them to play SEC football. And whether that's Lynn Bowden or Benny Snell or the dudes up front that they've built, they get Josh Allen, they turn him, him into a, a superstar. Um, it's work. So to that point, when I meet with and talk with other first-year coaches in the SEC, usually one of my first questions is, hey, man, what's your blueprint? How are you going to do things differently than they've been done at School X in the past? Mm-hmm. Or how are you going to do things here that would be different than the Alabamas, LSUs, uh, Tennessees, whatever? And the guys that don't have an answer have failed. It's as simple as <laughs> it's that. It's interesting. It's as simple as that, or, or a, an answer that's, that's, that's not um, page one of a binder that's three inches thick. Mark Stoops had a plan. Um, he was given time by his athletic director to get the plan in place, and now they're thriving and flourishing. So, yeah, that's how I would describe them. Um, my favorite time, and just to give people a peek behind the curtain, like we go in, I usually go in for a football game on Thursday afternoon in time to go watch practice say hi to folks, just kind of be a, an observer, see how the, what the team is doing and, and who might be getting reps. And then on Friday, we meet with coaches and players in person. Well, if you have a team once a year, it's hard to get to know people because Fridays and during season, coaches' guards are usually up. I've had Kentucky so often that I've been in those meeting rooms by October where – Mark Soups will go, what are we meeting for? You guys know what we're doing. You know our personnel. And then the meeting turns into kind of like a, a social discussion, uh, just like you would go to lunch with somebody and just shoot the bull. That's where I really get to know guys like that. And talking with him about everything from social issues to his family background to building a program where we're able to step away from, hey, tell me about your second string left tackle. So we're smart during this broadcast or sound smart um, helps me appreciate him even more. I, I just, I think he's a fantastic coach. Calipari, uh, you know, I've now known him for 10 years and I know him a little bit off the court and he is, you know, he's kind of a hard person to describe because on the one hand, he is kind of what you see in the media, but on the other hand, he's, also other stuff too. Um, but he's a character. Every conversation with him will go a long time. Like he's not an easy person. He'll either talk to you for five seconds or five hours. What has, <laughs> what has your experience been with him? Yeah, I've known Cal, or I should say Cal has known me um, longer than any other SEC coach in any sport because I covered his Memphis teams and I was working for two different networks at the time. I was working for CSTV and CSS. And CSS was a, a Southern-based network. I'm not sure if it was in Lexington. I don't yeah, by think the way, I wrote Kentucky. for CSTV.com. I didn't know your CSTV background, but I was oh, the yeah. college basketball writer for CSTV.com in like 2007. I don't think ESPN would ever do a 30 for 30 on it, but there were, we had a great group of guys and gals that all worked together and and coexisted there. Brian Jones and Adam Zucker on CBS and Greg Amzinger, MLB Network, and Michelle Beadle, and Carter Blackburn's a friend of mine, and James Bates, who played at Florida. It was up and down. It was a great experience. It was my first TV job out of school anyway. So obviously, you know, those carry a little bit more meaning. But I was around their program a ton. Um, and they welcomed me with open arms, even though I was doing telecasts that were watched by nobody. And they knew they were watched by nobody. But anytime I showed up, I was welcome to come by and watch practice and hang out. And, you know, we got the team meal upstairs. And Tony Barbie was an assistant there. And Derek Kellogg and John Robick and hanging out with those guys. In fact, I got so comfortable with that team that at the Final Four uh, in San Antonio, I, I drove to the Alamo Dome with my bosses. And I look at my credential and I said, hey, I don't want to go to the wrong place or step out of line. Where am I allowed to go with this credential? And my boss looked at me and he said, Tom, we're CBS. We own the building this weekend, which was not entirely untrue because every year they play a pickup basketball game on the court at the Final Four with the rack of balls that have the Final Four logo on them. And we went out there that, uh, that Friday night and played pickup ball for two hours at the Alamo Dome. 
So it wasn't totally untrue. I maybe took advantage of that a little bit. And <laughs> I was – the game ends, they win the semifinal game, and I just walk right into the coach's locker room and congratulate everybody. I was standing on the floor while they're going through the layup line. I remember Derek Kellogg and Tony Barbie and, and Robes look at me and they go, dude, what are you doing here? And I said, I, I can go anywhere I want. Look, <laughs> I got this credential. I can, I can be standing right here. Um, so how would you describe John Calipari? Well, I tell my friends this who have asked about him, and I have a lot of friends who are huge basketball fans, and some of them have met him, and, and they're blown away by him. Um, he could go into any situation, whether that be a boardroom, um, um, the roughest neighborhood in your town, the nicest country club in your town, an elementary school down this. No matter where he goes, he's comfortable with who he is, and he can relate to those people, and, and they can relate to him. I don't know how he does it. It's like a magic trick. It's like Harry Potter where they pull the sheet over their head and, and they're invisible. He can, he can just blend and, – and, he you know, there's not a whole lot of blending because when he comes in a room, you know when he does. But he can just blend into any situation, and it's easy to see why he's such a successful recruiter and why he can, um, why he can relate to, to parents in that regard. Uh, I don't think he gets enough credit for what he does year in and year out with his basketball team. I've said this time and again, and I've said it to him. I can go watch one of his practices um, on December 10th, and it would be the same, uh, if not the same, a very similar practice to what I saw the year before and four years before that and 13 years before that at Memphis in that because of the youth and the turnover of his roster, he has to do something that most coaches don't have to do. He has to reteach the game of basketball to his roster every year, whether that be press break or how we're going to do the dribble drive offense or the side out of bounds or what happens when you go on your first road trip or you go to the United Center for the first time or whatever it may be. And I've learned from sitting on the sideline and listening to him have those talks with his teams um, I've learned a lot about him as a teacher and as a person. And I am indebted to him that he, allow, he has that open door policy. And, and he allows me to walk in. I took our football crew over there um, a couple years ago, Jordan Rogers and Cole Kublik. It was a Friday afternoon practice. I texted one of the guys. I said, hey, we'd love to come over and watch practice. I want them to see a John Calipari practice. And so, yeah, you're welcome. Come on over. We walk in. Cal's in the back having a meeting. Go and sit, kind of give him a short wave. He interrupts the meeting, and he says, yeah, hey, guys, nice to meet you. Have a great call tomorrow night. He goes, Tom, you, you've been here. Just, just go ahead. You know, show them what they need to see. And that's I'm truly appreciative of that, not just a program at Kentucky's level, uh, but any SEC program that allows me, that trusts me by opening the door to me that I can, I can literally walk in and go check out a practice on a Friday afternoon. Well, I appreciate uh, I appreciate you. You've been so nice to uh, KSR over the years. I'm hoping we'll get to have games this year. This could be a great season for Kentucky sports with a good football team and a good basketball team. Uh, so hopefully we will be seeing you in a lot of games because that means we have games. But yeah. uh, but either way, uh, appreciate it. And you've become a good friend. And we uh, thank you. Thank you for taking the time. Well, my pleasure, and I know you don't like talking about yourself, but I, I just want to close with this. What you have built and with Ryan and Drew and Shannon um, is the perfect example of a community show that reaches as wide a community as possible. We know uh, what's possible when it comes to the Kentucky fan base, and it's been a pleasure getting to know you guys and being allowed in that community as well. Um, that's an incredible blueprint, and and – to say, why don't more people copy this is because not everybody can. You guys have special relationships with your listeners, and it's because, um, you know, it's because you have these incredible personalities that allow you to reach them. Well, don't tell anyone, because I feel like you <laughs> – I, I honestly feel like you are one of the very few people who sort of has gotten it and seen the, 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 the power of it, like, you know – it's easy for people to think, well, it's just Kentucky. What a small market. You know, I always make the argument that KSR has a stronger connection to its audience, maybe than any sports, local sports show in the country. And I don't think a lot of people realize it. And so it's why 
it sometimes always feels like we're the little engine that could because there are very few people that sort of get it. But I always appreciate that uh, you're one of so. Well, thanks for having me. And uh, I appreciate the hard work that you put in and that your crew puts in to make it seem so easy. All right.